0: It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with the two great mysteries of creation, life and death. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to... Uh, well, we've warned you. Hello again, I'm Jason. Welcome to Filmography Club. Today it's another entry into the Our Favorite Movies catalog and we're joined by Alex Bean. Alex is an author, educator, and early film aficionado. He's served as an underwriter on a number of silent and early sound film restorations for the San Francisco Silent Film Festival, and has had a fascination with universal horror films since he was about five years old. And that's awfully fortunate for us, because today we're talking about the universal horror films. In particular, we're talking about the earlier, more iconic films, your Frankensteins and Draculas, because Universal wound up making like 30 of these things, and there's just no way to cover all that in just one or two episodes so we'll be focusing on those earlier films on this and on the next episode as you're about to hear alex really knows his classic horror cinema and it was fun to talk movie monsters with him so here it is the first half of my conversation with alex bean about the classic universal monster movies And I'm joined by Alex Bean. Alex, it's great to see you.
1: It's great to be here. It's the perfect time of year to cover these films. I'm excited, man.
0: Yeah, me too. Me too. And I'm glad you mentioned that you wanted to talk about the Universal Monster movies. This is a great excuse to just go back and and revisit those movies. I haven't watched them all in preparation for this, but I've, I've watched a handful of them. And I've soaked up as much info on them as I can. But something tells me I'm not even half as knowledgeable about these movies as you are. Hence you being here today. So I appreciate that.
1: No, thank you. I think uh, for your viewers, I think what's so fascinating about these films, uh, particularly compared to other films from the thirties, you know, you look back at that time period and there are very few films that have the longevity that these do, you know, outside of maybe Disney canon, which starts in the late thirties was Snow White uh, and then like Wizard of Oz, some one-off classics. Uh, There are not many films from that time period that still have kind of a common lore with filmgoers uh, all these years later. And yet there's so many elements from these films that kids today uh, will during the uh, Halloween season will go through. They'll dress like Bela Lugosi. They'll dress like Boris Karloff as Frankenstein. So the impact of these films are huge, given the fact that they're uh, nearly 90 years old now.
0: Yeah, 1931 is when this whole thing kicked off in earnest. Uh, I mean, that's debatable. 1925 saw the release of Lon Chaney Sr.'s Phantom of the Opera produced by Carl Amley. That's kind of seen as like the proto movie, I suppose, the one that kind of six years earlier got a head start on what became cinema's real first shared universe. But um, they don't usually consider that movie when they talk about the universal monster movies. They lump in the 1943 color version of Phantom of the Opera, if I'm not mistaken, instead of the Lon Chaney black and white silent movie, which I think that's. I'm I'm pretty sure they're doing that because they don't have the rights to it anymore. I believe that's a public domain film, and that's probably why, because they just can't make any money off of it. But yeah, 1931 through, I think, 1956, 55, something like that is considered to be the canonical run on these movies.
1: Right. And... For your listeners to explain the background to leading into this first film with Dracula, um, Lon Chaney was their megastar in the uh, early 20s. But what's really fascinating about it, Jason, and it's hard for me to wrap my head around this uh, as someone who's used to superhero films galore today, but leading into Dracula, Carl Limley Jr. really had to sell his dad on this film because he did not want to do it. If you look back at those earlier films like Lon Chaney and Hunchback of Notre Dame and Phantom of the Opera, and then Conrad Veidt starred for them in The Man Who Laughs, which is also a semi-horror, it's not really a horror film, but based on the grotesque makeup is seen as one. All of those films deal with men that basically are not strictly evil, they, they're they disfigured. And in two of the cases, they have hearts of gold underneath them. There are no supernatural elements to them. And so the idea at the time was that no American audience would go for something like Dracula because they would think, oh, vampires, that's foolish, that's kid stuff. So he really had to sell his dad on this. And how he did it was he had a universal rep go to the Broadway production that was in New York uh, in the late 20s. Bela Lugosi was the lead in that play. So that's how they uh, found him out. But... It was a still a very strong uh, stretch to say that Universal was behind this. And uh, there was an interview done with David Manners, who is the romantic lead in this film, a loser of a leading man in all of these films. We'll talk about it. He was also in The Mummy. And he said that during this production, none of the actors really took it seriously, except Lugosi, <laughs> that apparently walked in front of the mirror and kept saying, I am Dracula. And you can see Lugosi doing that. Sure. But, He's only really the only actor you can kind of that rings forth in the film. I think it's it's a very straightforward production, but Lugosi's presence sells the film.
0: I'd agree with that. And I recently watched, in preparation for this episode, I finally got around to watching the Spanish-language version of Dracula. I'm not sure if you've seen that or not. But I think in the late 80s, it started getting a reputation as being perhaps the superior version. And for the listeners that don't know what I'm talking about, at the same time in 1931, when they were filming the English-language version of Dracula starring Bela Lugosi, the one that we all know, the iconic Dracula, they would start filming that movie at about 8 a.m. And then once the English-language cast and crew... Had left, a Spanish-speaking cast and crew would come in, with the exception, I believe, of the director. I think he spoke English, and he just directed everything through an interpreter. And those guys had the benefit of being able to look at the dailies for what the English-speaking cast had shot that day, and then think, okay, how can we improve on this? And as a result, the running time is just a little under half an hour longer than the English-speaking version. The movie clocks in around 1.45. For something like that. Whereas the English speaking version is like one hour, 11 minutes, something like that. So it's a bit more cinematic. So the only real direction going into the film that the actor who played Dracula in the Spanish language version, his name was uh, Carlos Villarreal, I believe, if I'm pronouncing that right, I hope I am, was to just look at what Bella Lugosi did that day and do that. That was pretty much it. Just copy what Lugosi's doing.
1: And does not do as good of a job. (laughs) (laughs) The the, the interesting thing that you bring that up. Uh, and what's really neat for folks who are going into this for the first time is now throughout most of Universal's home media, if you pick up the Blu-ray or DVD of these, it normally has the Spanish Dracula included. So you, it's not hard to find that. Um, you can compare those two. Um, I think what's really, where the Spanish Dracula really kind of does a better job is in some of the set pieces at the beginning. There's certainly some stronger camera movements there. There's that iconic scene that has when Renfield comes through the massive doors at the beginning, and he's walking into the castle, and he sees Lugosi coming down the steps. In that version, it's kind of matter of fact. You know, you think of it as this iconic moment, but it just does kind of this quick cut to Lugosi and he's just kind of standing there. But in the Spanish version, the camera kind of swings up the steps. And uh, it does make you, even though Carlos doesn't have the same uh, overall kind of ambience to him that Lagosi does, it does make you wish that Todd Browning, the director of the English version, had taken some more risks with the direction in the film.
0: The scenes just sort of take their time. I guess that accounts for the longer uh, length. I, I- Again, they were, using, they were working with the same script. They uh, were using the same sets. All that equipment is right there. They're using the same equipment, I would assume, pretty much the same equipment. Yeah, I think that it just came through uh, with camera movement, just uh, establishing shots, stuff like that. But again, they had the advantage of looking at what the English-speaking cast and crew had done that day, and then they would look at it and think, okay, how could we frame this a bit better, or do we like what they did, and let's just knock that off. And by knock that off, I mean just replicate what they did. And they were able to light the movie a lot better, too. I think I prefer the lighting in the Spanish-language version. And really, the main difference, aside from, of course, the cast, the uh, actress that played Lucy, I believe her name is Eva, in the Spanish-language version, she dressed a little more, I don't want to say revealing, because it wasn't you know super racy or anything like that. But Lucy was just buttoned up all the way up to her neck, long sleeves. Just the only flesh that was showing on her was maybe an ankle and her neck and face. The the lady that played Eva just had a little bit more more going on style wise. And
1: you. Yeah. And in the English version, uh, this, of course, was done under it, it's technically a pre-code film. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that does lead to some things. But to your point, Obviously, Universal was being more cautious here. There's not a lot of risks being taken. The the only scene that I think kind of sticks out uh, in terms of that, that the censors actually didn't go after them for, was the intro scene where Renfield is knocked out with the glass of wine and Dracula goes in. Uh, many different film historians since then have said, you know, there's kind of a, a very sense of homosexuality there of Dracula coming in and telling his wives, no, I will have this man. But yeah. I, I don't think, I think given the fact that it's just a vampire and and they're, they're not thinking about it through that lens, I think that's how it got past the censors. Um, but that is kind of a fascinating element to this film. And, um, Many times um, over my life, as I've tried to introduce these films to other people, uh, Dracula is the first chronologically, as you said earlier, it is 1931. I always tell new viewers to these films to wait about watching that film because many of the James Well films, the two Frankensteins, The Invisible Man, they have a much better pace to them. They hold up a lot well, I think a lot better I think in today's uh, format, Um, as opposed to this film to kind of offer some context here. As I said earlier, this was based on a stage play. This was actually not based on Bram Stoker's actual novel which I'm kind of thankful for because I think the novel is kind of a bore.
0: And maybe impossible to film too, the way it keeps switching between the narrator being third person omniscient, and then it'll go to ledger entries, like journal entries and stuff, not to interrupt.
1: No, absolutely. Um, and it's interesting in that film, of course, Jonathan Harker, who is played by David Manners in this film, is actually the, the key protagonist at the beginning. He's who Renfield is in this film. They made a number of arrangements basically for Broadway to cut down on the time uh, and to make it move at a quicker pace. What happened, though, was in the early days of sound film, a lot of directors looked at the stage productions and said, hey, I've got a ready made film. So outside of the big set pieces at the beginning, Todd Browning, the director here, basically films this kind of scene for scene of the play version. And to your point earlier, there are long periods in this film uh, in the second half that are just a string of dialogue, people sitting on a couch talking, explaining things. And I think for new viewers, that just really comes across as more. More slowly paced and just it, it's harder to follow. I, I think you want more action and you're expecting more from this film. Not to say it's a bad film. I just don't think this is the best intro to this series versus the other films we're going to talk about.
0: And I'm in my 40s and when I watch these movies, I remember as a kid, these used to always be on when the, back when they were like just three channels. And a handful of, you know, premium cable channels to watch. These movies were always on, and they were always cropped, and they always had just really bad definition. You could tell it was like a copy of a copy. There was a lot of flicker, the, the picture quality, the sound quality. It was all pretty bad. And I just remember kind of equating these movies with, eh, that's grandpa crap. That's, eh, whatever. It's... That's not worth my time. Now, as an adult watching these movies with fresh eyes, really for the first time, I mean, there's stuff that you you soak up just through cultural osmosis, you know, the the, the widow's peak, the accent, the gate with Frankenstein's walk, all that stuff, or the Frankenstein monster walk, not Frankenstein. But to watch these as an adult with fresh eyes, I appreciated them a lot more. They feel like a, like a warm blanket movie, you know, they're kind of comforting, something that you just kind of put on when you're on the couch and you just kind of want to just bask in the ambiance of the movie. It's not so much about, oh, what happens next? I'm on the edge of my seat. It's just, let's let this movie happen to me for an hour and 15 minutes.
1: It is. It, they are incredibly accessible, perhaps more so than any other series of films that I have. I've have witnessed and I've seen a lot of films. I know you have, too. I'm just kind of amazed each time about the fact that I can sit my little cousin who's nine years old in front of a TV and he is just entranced with Wolfman or the Invisible Man. These films really hold up. And uh, with this particular film, I, I think that one element that is also so comedic to think about, given our current world, is the fact that audiences were genuinely shocked at the end of this film to learn that Dracula was a vampire. That was a huge deal for audiences back then, because as I said earlier, they were not used to supernatural. Um, Universal had done quite a few films that were like haunted mystery films. One was The Cat and the Canary uh, in 1927. And they also did uh, a remake of it, The Cat Creeps in 1930, which would have supplanted Dracula as being the first horror sound film but it's lost, so we, we've never seen it. There are only a few little clips that remain. But with both of those films, it was a situation where it was some, a murder mystery where the butler did it. You know, There was always a reveal at the end. So a lot of audiences heading into Dracula in 1931 thought at the end, oh, it's gonna be a revealed that Dracula's not really a vampire. He's just some type of gangster or some criminal. And there used to be a great little speech at the end of this. Uh, I know we're going to speak on Frankenstein, and there is that wonderful speech, uh, iconic by Edward Ben Sloan at the beginning, uh, telling us maybe we need, to, we need to leave the cinema. We may be too scared. He had a speech at the end of this film where he told audiences that if after this film they were worried, he said, go home, tuck yourself in, and remind yourself that there really are such things. Censors were outraged. I mean, the, the religious types blew up. They thought, oh, he's, he's, He's endorsing witchcraft. He's endorsing vampires. And as a result, that little clip got cut from most versions in most states. At that time, we had state censorship that cut a lot of it. So we don't have any good footage of that today. But I, I have a feeling that if that clip still survived, it would be just as iconic as his bit at the beginning of Frankenstein.
0: I've got the Blu-ray collection of the early films, and the movies look great. They sound great. And yeah, that's not that's definitely not in the, the Dracula Blu-ray, which is too bad. As a Blu-ray bonus feature, that that's where the Spanish language version of Dracula is, by the way. I just always thought that was a little weird that they put a whole movie as a bonus feature when a lot of people consider that to be the superior version. Now, I'm not saying it is, but. Right. But about 85% of the Spanish language version of Dracula that I have on Blu-ray looks, uh, 85% of it looks wonderful. The other 15%, like when it just cuts to another Shot, it'll just be grainy and there's flicker and just you can tell this was cobbled together from multiple sources. And then I dug around a little bit before we started this uh, podcast here. Sure enough, the movie was lost for many, many, many decades, and it was just rediscovered, I think, sometime in the 80s. So I'm sure that there's not a great, perfect version of the Spanish Dracula out there. Just too bad.
1: It is. It's very unfortunate. And I I think that Universal, we really have to give a lot of kudos to their restoration team. Uh, Because as you said earlier, the prints that used to air on TV and on VHS were very, very rough of some of these films. A lot of dirt on the prints. Uh, There was dialogue that was missing uh, on on Dracula, the moans at the end. Spoiler alert for everybody. Dracula dies at the end, or at least permanently dies. He he has a stake driven through his heart by Van Helsing. And for a long time, those moans were missing. They reinserted. They finally found an audio track of those and were able to reinsert them. But this is something that I think Universal, again, they understand the importance of these films and to their history and it is such a miracle that they have taken the best available elements and cleaned those up. So, today, as you said, when you watch these on Blu ray, it looks, I mean, outside of the black and white, this looks as nice as a film that you would pick up that was from this
0: year. The black and white, I think, adds to it for some of these films. Certainly, the director and the cinematographer used it to their advantage. Mummy has got its own look altogether. And again, it's just black and white, but it's this high contrast, really, really dark shadows, very, very bright whites. Wolfman uses the fog, you know, the smoke machine to wonderful effect. There's all sorts of just light sources spilling from behind trees in the fog. It's just beautiful stuff that, I mean, you can do it in color, but the black and white just looks gorgeous.
1: Oh, absolutely. I think that's a good segue into The Mummy, because uh, for a lot of uh, viewers, I always say that is the better starting ground. If you're looking for a film that's similar to Dracula, because really the film is Dracula. The story is the same. Yeah. And it's got the same cast of players pretty much outside. You swap out Lugosi for Karloff. Mm -hmm. Um, This film had in its uh, two leading positions, David Manners, who is the romantic interest in Dracula's back here, is the romantic interest. Uh, Edward Van Sloan is back as the doctor in this film. And they also have Karloff here in what I think is, for me, a very underrated horror film. I don't think it, I think because of the brevity of seeing the mummy in the full makeup at the beginning and just kind of the... The copy and paste story elements, it kind of gets looked over from time to time. But this is a gorgeous little film. The makeup job from Jack Pierce here is just incredible. And there are many elements of this film that I think hold up better than Dracula, again, because it's an actual movie. It's not based on stage play. The pace just
0: works better. It's, it's a fun little film. I enjoyed it a lot, as a matter of fact. But again, it's a Dracula knockoff. Which is fine, which is fine. It had been a whole year since Dracula had been in the theater, so why not just remake it and put a fresh coat of paint on the thing? I mean, Hollywood's still doing that today, as a matter of fact. How many iterations of The Mummy have we had now? I think the, the third. Now, I think there are six or seven Mummy Universal, like the black and white, during the period that we're discussing anyway. There's about six of those movies, and the first one has nothing at all to do with everything else that comes after it different mummy altogether.
1: I think you're right on that. I think one of the great disappointments, and of course this is enough for its own separate interview, but the series of sequels to all of these films, which is where the universe springs from, uh, some of them are really good, some of them are really bad. I was always shocked because with the Mummy sequels, they're all about 60 minutes each. And you're sitting there saying, this can't be that bad. It would be like a follow-up to Nightmare on Elm Street of Friday the 13th. It'll be laughably good. They're really not. They, I think what's so sad about those films, as you were saying, Karloff just pulls this off so well in this film as a you know tragic figure, as this misguided lover who's wanting to resurrect his love from the dead. And every film after this just strips down that character to being kind of a zombie. And it's it's so unfortunate because it takes all of the depth and just sucks it out. He's no longer you know, a character. He's a plot device. And another thing that's what's uh, for, for new viewers, when you go into this film, you always think that you're going to see that mummy with the wrappings And you're always surprised in this first film to see that only pops up in the first few minutes of the film and you only get a waist up shot. And there's that great scene, just perfect from early Universal Horror, of the guy who sees the bandage going, trailing on the ground and breaks out into that psychotic laughter. Uh, Just my God, what
0: what great filmmaking, great filmmaking. The Renfield character, I suppose, the guy who just goes mad being exposed to what he's seen. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, Zita Johan here, who plays the, the female, the love interest, uh, the princess, she had a really amazing background. She was a stage actress.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did a little reading up on her. She's gorgeous.
1: Absolutely beautiful. She had a film uh, the following year after this, The Sin of Norma Ran, which was a very popular pre-code film, popular because it kind of did a double switch with the audience. It it has a very risque poster for the time where you can see kind of a partial breast in it. And and oh, my gosh, it just sent all the all the people to the to the cinemas to uh, see her. And it doesn't really feature much nudity. It's kind of a it's it's a fun little film uh, from Majestic uh, Pictures about uh, this woman who's in this adulterous affair with uh, a politician, I believe, or a businessman at the time. It's a fun little watch, but we can't stress enough how much she hated doing this film. She loved Karloff, she hated the director Karl Freund, and he hated her. And uh, there are many portions of this film where he tried to get her to strip down to say, "Oh, she's being." dramatic and she wants to get nude in front of the cameras and she just hit right back with him and she said well if you can get this past the sensors I'll strip down right here and then and she had him you know yeah she got him but it's um she's she's a really fascinating uh figure in this film she she has certainly this quality to her that makes her performance very magnetic for the audience Well, I'll tell you this one other thing. And I I always think this is this is where as a universal horror fan, as a classic movie fan, you just sit there and go, oh, I wish we had it. Um, Originally for this film, they they uh, filmed a few major sequences about uh, Imhotep, who's the mummy and the princess, their love throughout history being reincarnated. And uh, they filmed a scene from ancient Rome as being one of them. I mean, these were very beautifully, lavishly shot scenes and they ended up cutting them. And it it was just one of those things. I'm sure it was a time constraint. Maybe they felt like it didn't fit in. Um, But it's one of those tragedies that... uh, We see a lot in early film because as folks will see as they're watching these films, all of these films are very, very short. They're all less than 70 minutes.
0: Yeah, they're all right around an hour 10, hour 15. Mm -hmm. Right. And we
1: lived in a world back then where audiences were forced into matinee films. You wanted to get shorter films because it meant more and more screenings per day. You got more and more money. So that's one of the unfortunate elements. But again, to your point, uh, this film is just a really kind of gorgeous buried treasure here. It's it's a film that doesn't have as much context to it as the others that we'll discuss, but it's it's a it's a neat little film to explore.
0: Yeah, and it's a neat little standalone movie too. Again, it, it kicked off a franchise, but it stands alone. The other movies that followed it had nothing to do with it.
1: Absolutely. You want to talk about the the cream of the crop. I will go on the rec- I can go on the record with you saying this because I feel like everybody else. Maybe I'm alone. I don't think I'm alone. Everyone always says of these films, "Bride of Frankenstein" is the the gold standard, and I love that film. It is absolutely wonderful. And go check out Jason's uh, separate podcast on that because uh, he and Mickey did a great job on it. Having said that, personally for myself. Uh, The Invisible Man is as good as it gets. It is uh, about 69 minutes of pure joy. And you're watching a master and James Well directing this. You're watching Claude Rains in his first big role, knocking it out of the park. Uh, you're watching a hilarious supporting cast. I mean, to me, this is the perfect, the perfect little film. I, I don't know how many films throughout cinema history I would mark as being perfect. But this one is. Everything about this works. It holds up. Uh, Rains is perhaps more magnetic than any other actor in any other role I can think of you were drawn to him. And as so many people said, it doesn't matter that he's a bad guy. As you're watching him, there's something about you. You want to be invisible. You want to be the invisible man because he sells this to you so well. It, I, I can't speak more highly of it. Every time that I speak to someone, I'm saying, if they haven't seen this, go watch it right now because it is, it is one of those perfect pieces of film that we are so fortunate to still have.
0: This is one of my favorites from this uh the initial batch of Universal Monster movies. This is I mean technically it's a monster movie but there's nothing supernatural going on in it and the monster is just the monster that's inside of all of humanity. This is an evil character. He's not a misunderstood creature. He's not a vampire who's a slave to his own urges. This is just a guy who turned himself invisible and he's just a monster.
1: And I think uh, to your point, I think we should preface what I said earlier about wanting to become this character. I think as you're older, you see how evil this character is. If you're a young kid watching this, oh, this is your dream. Teen angst. You know, it's like you're invisible. Now you have the power to do whatever you want. So as a young man, when I discovered this film, I was entranced. And then as I got older, I was just kind of, you know, blown away more by just how malicious and with glee this character. And I think that's what makes this performance work. There is an added sense of humor here, much like in The Bride, to so much what's going on. You have Uno O'Connor in this film, like she is in Bride, who's just delicious and has those high-pitched screams. She's great. Yeah hmm. And uh, the, the effect, I think, going back to the technical achievements of this film, I think this technical achievement is so impressive, even by today's standards, um, how they pulled this off. Uh, watching The Invisible Man, uh, the film that Universal released earlier this year right before the pandemic started, which is a, it was just a good little film. It, it is a fun film to watch and uh, certainly modernizes the tale better than <laughs> the modern depiction of the mummy with Tom Cruise. Yeah, the, uh, the
0: Elizabeth Moss uh, film. Yeah.
1: Right, absolutely. But I, I would say even in that film, here we are with all these years of technology, I still think this film holds up technically better. Uh, what they did was uh, they, had some very, they had some very smart, oh gosh, what was his name? If I think about it, if it comes to me, the technician behind this film, they called him the doctor at Universal. The special effects? Oh, John, John, P. John Fulton. P. Fulton. Yep. Yeah. John Fulton, who did, the, who did all the effects for all of the Invisible Men films, uh, the subsequent sequels. He came up with the idea of doing Black Velvet for the background and Black Velvet as a covering So picture, if you were kind of like today, how we have a green screen and we have a uh, CGI suit that the actor will crawl into. They didn't have that back then. So they covered Claude Rains in a black velvet suit and they would dress him up on whatever he was wearing in that scene. And then they would film him against a black velvet backdrop. Then they would merge in the scenes of the actual background. And so what you're left with is this great effect. I mean, it's still, it's it reminds me a lot of King Kong and the fact that to this day, it still holds up. It's hard to envision that as being just this life-size miniature toy. It's really hard to believe that uh, this was just all done with Black Velvet because the effect is, is really good.
0: It looks almost modern, yeah. In fact, uh, I saw stuff that came out in the 80s that was pretty much on par with what was going on in this movie, which was released, what, 1933?
1: Right. I would even say that the CGI stuff today actually holds up less well because you can it really you can see the effect being uh, being done. I think after all these years ad nauseum of having to see CGI. Uh, but there's something about the effects on a lot of these films that hold up because they were dealing with man-made elements. And you have a lot of great makeups in these films that I think hold up the most of the makeups today. Uh, because they were dealing with very core elements, cotton collodion. You weren't able to do a lot of fancy things, and that would be seen as perhaps a deriding feature back then. But by today's standards, I think we put too much into it. And so like in this film, uh, there are a lot of special effects that really stand the test of time.
0: It's technically a marvel. The casting was perfect. Again, this guy, you don't really see him for most of the movie until like, I think the very end, Claude Rains. Uh, he was cast for his voice. He needed to have presence and he needed to sound malicious. And he's got this cackling, gleeful, gleefully evil quality to him that uh, just stuck with me.
1: Oh, his voice is mesmerizing. hmm. It's it's um, I think Claude Rains and, of course, he had such a great career after this incredible uh, film career. Some of the great films of all time, Casablanca, Lawrence of Arabia, The Adventures of Robin Hood. He has one of the best voices in cinema history. I think we always talk about uh, who would you want to narrate your life? If Claude Rains were still here, I think that would be a pretty killer voice because he has this just uh, awe inspiring quality. You can tell he was a theatrical actor. Because mm-hmm. it's got that that voice
0: that just sticks with you, and of course, this movie, like the, all of the movies uh, in this initial batch of Universal monster movies, it spawned. It was uh, kind of ground zero for its own franchise, its own little mini franchise within the franchise that uh, the. Sequels, I believe, started pretty much immediately. I think it was Returns. Is that right? Invisible Man Returns. Then they took a comedic turn in 1940 with The Invisible Woman, which, I mean, these movies were really kind of about nudity in a way. Nudity that you're, you can't show. Like there's that, that famous scene in the, the Invisible Man with him trying to freak out everyone when he pulls the wrappings off of his head. And then he just strips down to just a shirt and just starts chasing people around the room. And of course the audience's mind fills in the blanks. Like this is just <laughs> a man straight up Donald Duck in it, chasing these guys around the room.
1: Right. And uh, to your point on that, uh, the invisible man returns is one of the big signature first films of uh, Vincent Price, who would go on to become his own horror mega star. They got him to be uh, the role of uh, the invisible man in that film. So uh, this series is fascinating because it's been it, it created two mega stars from it. What what's sad to me talking about the kind of after effects of this, Universal really loved Claude Rains and they wanted to use him a lot after this. So the following year they released a film uh, called The Man Who Reclaimed His Head, which sounds like an Invisible Man sequel, right? But it's <coughs> not. Uh, they went so far as to really build this thing as being that, and um, when theaters asked Universal how should we promote it, they said, oh, go back and take your old Frankenstein posters and just cut the head off of them. So everybody thought this was a horror film. It is actually an incredibly well-made political thrill. And it's a film lost to time. But because Universal built this up as being a horror film, it garnered such a bad reputation with audiences. They felt like they were sold a bad bill of goods. Uh, It's lost to history. But this... Uh, This film definitely shot Claude Rains out onto his own path. And of course, he came back in The Wolfman a few years later as the dad there. But this this is by far his his signature work in this series of films.
0: And one of the few out of this initial batch that uh, Jack Pierce, I don't believe, worked on this one at all, because why would you? (laughs) Nothing to do. Nothing to do. And that's it for the first half of our conversation. We'll finish our talk on the next episode. Feel free to give us a follow on Instagram at filmography underscore club underscore podcast. And while you're at it, why not subscribe to the podcast? After all, it's available everywhere. Podcasts are available. It's super easy. Just mash the little follow button. Maybe give us a rating. Maybe write a review. It's all very helpful. I'd like to thank my guest today, Alex Bean. I'd also like to thank Will Fox, Ross Warner, and Michael Eads. Filmography Club is produced right here in spooky Nashville, Tennessee by the always hardworking folks that we own this town. I'm Jason Cavanus. This is Filmography Club. Thanks for listening.